Hello and welcome to The Wax Show. I will be your host today, the wonderful Dan. And today I also have with me, of course, my two awesome co-hosts. Matt. And And today we are starting a super episode similar to the One Piece super episode, but ideally with a few less episodes, aiming for two, uh, definitely no more than three. Uh, And we're going to be talking about something near and dear to my heart uh, over this super episode. It is uh, something I've been involved in close to a decade now. Um, If you count all tabletop RPGs like it, then much, much longer than that most of my life. Um, But I want to give a big thanks, big shout out to the company Paizo. We are not sponsored, but they're the creative minds behind everything Pathfinder. And that is what we'll be talking about, is some interesting history and topics and what the world of Galarian is, which is the setting for the tabletop RPG D20 system Pathfinder. For those who don't know what tabletop RPG or D20 means or all that jazz, I'm sure we'll go into detail over all that because we have uh, Matt here who is fairly experienced, uh, has learned quite a bit over the last several years of getting involved in playing. But we also have TJ, who is basically a complete novice to it all, doesn't really know anything (laughs) about it. So he'll have some great um, I don't know what you're talking about questions. Matt will have some more in-depth questions for those of you who are already involved and familiar with the world. But a brief overview. Basically, Pathfinder is a an iteration or a version of D&D that was created by some folks who disagreed with the way one of the old versions was structured. It was D&D 3 or 3.5. Uh, the guys from Paizo were part of that team. For the most part, they weren't huge fans of some of the design choices of the system, so they left, they made Galarian, they made their own system of Pathfinder, and bam, today we're actually, we've got Pathfinder 2.0 coming out. Um, It's already come out a little bit, and there'll be more on that probably toward the end of the second episode. Um, But it's just this fantastical, amazing, high fantasy world with crazy stories and awesome things. Um, It's been around for a while. this tech, I don't actually think this was the first full Paizo release. I think this was an augmented uh, adventure path, which is basically a long form campaign over six books uh, published once a month, essentially. Um, but the the first one that was released was October 2007 to January 2008. So it's been around for a little while now. Um, but after that uh, relatively long intro, uh, Matt, TJ, do you have any questions about what any of that means, what any of that is, before we dive into actual like story content? This will probably be more like an adventure fantasy story explanation than a, a technical system-driven explanation, because that would be probably boring to a lot of our viewers. <laughs> yeah, that I, makes sense. I believe I believe the goal here is a history of Galarian, not a... I don't know. Not, a, not an explanation of Pathfinder. Correct, yeah. Uh, my question was, I actually thought that the reason for the Pathfinder creation was 4.0 came out and they didn't like it. So they made a, basically a 3.0 clone that was better because they were already making a whole new, air quotes, whole new system. Uh, I'm not 100% sure because okay. of based on the timeline. Uh, I know it was one of the two. They didn't like the direction D&D was going at some point. Yeah. And they wanted to make changes and basically Wizards of the Coast, the owners of Dungeons and Dragons at the time, said, no, we we don't want to make those changes. We don't think that's good for the health of, of the system for one reason or another. And the folks from Paizo were like, well, people want this. 
there's enough people who want this to warrant us going off and making it for them. Goodbye. I guess part of my question, based on what I understand of D&D &D and Pathfinder and stuff, is um, slightly technical, I guess, then. And that, so you said AP, so Action Adventures? No, Adventure. So AP, this is a good question, means Adventure Path. An adventure path is a pre-written grand campaign, essentially. Typically, it will take a party of player characters, or players, essentially, um, from the beginning levels of newbie adventurer level one, just like in any RPG game you played. You're weak, you barely know how to do anything except use the bathroom and eat. Um, all the way up to, you know, the double-digit levels. For reference, Pathfinder's maximum level is barring additional systems we're not going to get involved in, 20. So a, a character is max level a, a, at 20. Monsters are different. We're not talking mechanics. Um, so it'll take you from 1 to 13 to 20, typically, uh, for, for an adventure path. So it's a pretty long campaign. And it, uh, in under the traditional Pathfinder system, you've got exponential experience. So every level afterward needs more and more and more and more experience to earn, uh, much like we're very familiar with RPG games, uh, even Pokemon. If you're leveling up your Pokemon, it's the same way. Uh, in Pathfinder 2, it's a little bit different. They flatten the curve, but again, that's more mechanical questions that we're not going to get involved in. So to answer your question, simple and sweet, it is a long campaign designed to be completed in roughly a year to a year and a half with a consistently meeting um, table of four to five people. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. So uh, any other questions on on that? Uh, just kind of the the what it is that we're going to be talking about before I get into the actual story, which is the fun part. I guess, and I think this might tie into what the story is then of uh, either a misunderstanding of me or just... So I know... So the person reading the story then would be the DM or uh, Dungeon Master? Correct. Right. Yeah, that is that is totally a, a good um, idea. Basically, all of the information that I'm going to be providing is from the perspective of something your dungeon master would probably have at least an inkling of. The dungeon master is basically the storyteller or the um, the the reader for an audiobook. you could even think. And the players, which would be, you know, the adventurers in the story are basically the free radical agents that can make decisions that influence the story and change the way things unfold. Now, to be fair, with these large adventure paths, they're kind of semi-railroady. You can make some decisions that change the way certain events develop, but ultimately you're traveling from a point A in a story to a point Z in a story. Um, that is one of the limitations of adventure paths, but there is a bunch of amazing work that goes into these that makes a dungeon master's life so much easier to be able to consistently run and uh, create a, an engaging world and an engaging story for the players. Um, I, I highly recommend you do not snub adventure paths. Um, as someone who's written their own adventures before, it is a lot of fucking work. So don't be afraid to use an adventure path. It is essentially a pre-written story. Um, but that doesn't take away the agency from the players. And the DM's job is basically to tell that story and ad lib implement the reactions and the choices of the players and explain how that impacts the outcome of said story that you are in. You're playing a story. 
Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, any D20 RPG system at a table is actually a group storytelling system. And that's one of the things I love about it the most. But we could I, I could do a completely separate episode and I have <laughs> written papers and done audio projects on what tabletop RPGs actually are and why they're absolutely fucking amazing from a social standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint. And I am absolutely qualified to talk about it in that aspect. That was a key component of my schooling. Um, so that's why we won't be talking about that angle and we'll be talking about the story, which I've never written my own fantasy story that's been published. So I am not qualified to make decisions on that, but I can at least regurgitate it and say that it's interesting. Dude. Yeah, that answers my questions so far. I'd love to read some of those papers if you still have them. Um, yeah, I could see. I think I have a lot of my old uh, school stuff. Uh, I could see if I could dig it up. But that's hey, not what uh, we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> So, we'll jump right into the story then, because you two said you're you're pretty good. Um, as far as what part of the history of Galarian I'm going to be explaining, I'm basically going to follow along the story of the adventure paths that have been written for Pathfinder so far, um, hitting some of the highlights, some of the interesting points that I know personally from playing a lot of these campaigns or running them as the DM, or at least reading them. Um, and I might do some exploring some side stories that are really interesting. Uh, if people have questions about specific aspects, I will do my best to explain them all. One thing uh, that is important to remember is you do not need to know all this shit to be a good DM. In fact, it is impossible to know all of this shit by heart. I do, in fact, have the wiki open to answer any immediate questions, um, but I do know quite a bit uh, myself. And yeah. We're just going to kind of explore this timeline of adventure paths uh, before we hit the start of the first one, which for reference, the canonical years in the story uh, are from from kind of the start of when Galarian was open for quote unquote players to change the timeline for everyone's table. It's a little bit different. Uh, it starts in the year of what's called 4707 AR, which basically you take the year the book was published, so in the case of the beginning of the first AP, August 2007, you add 2,700 years to it, and you get 4707. So that's how you get the canonical year, and it actually matches when it's released in the real world year-wise. I think there's a couple of hiccups with that mechanic throughout, but it's that's the general rule of thumb. So I if you hear me if... say 4711 AR, that means it came out in 2011. So I wonder so if they did that because 2007, if they just took out the zeros and like, we'll just add 2,700 years. Yes, that's how they did it. That's what I just said. I know, but I wonder <laughs> if they did that because they started in 2007. Why 27? That was what I was. I was just oh, 2,700. I see. It. Okay, fair enough. Interesting. Like they could have done 26 to 28, but they did 27 in 2007. I wonder if they were just like, well, we'll just be cheeky. That would make sense because to me, it would make more sense to just add a flat number like yeah, you know, like thousand years. Yeah, something, something like that. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Anyway, um, in before we start, I do need to cover one major thing prior to the beginning of the Adventure Path timelines, and that is the event in, I believe it is 4606. So this is 101 years before playable Galarian, air quotes, starts. 
let me just double check that year. I have the page up right now. Yes, 4606 this happened. There was a god named Eridan. He was the patron god of humans. He was a neutral god, lawful neutral, so, you know, follows the rules, gives the structure. He was, uh, basically, he was, he was a god of... Um, I mean, I've, I've got his areas of concern up right here. He was a god of history, of culture, of innovation, of humanity. But most importantly, he was the god of destiny. And in this year, 4606, uh, there was a prophecy that said he would return to mankind. But instead, he died. Or so people assume. Uh, a god died this year instead of fulfilling the prophecy, and ever since this year, uh, no destinies, no prophecies that were told, um, I believe, after his fall? One of the two, after or before his fall, have, have failed to come true. All of them have failed to come true, essentially. Uh, so basically, prophecies and destinies do not work because Aridin has fallen. Aridin has died. Um... He was the he was a human ascended to godhood through something we will get more involved in later in the story. I will save it for that. Um, but he was the last of a race known as the Aslanti, which are basically think ancient humanoids in Atlantis. They were ancient, but had advanced technology and magics and things. So he was a very powerful individual, rose to godhood and disappeared from Galarian as a whole. This left a lot of holy people, clerics and paladins specifically powerless because they gain their spells and a lot of their abilities and magic from their deity. If he is dead, he can no longer grant those powers unto those kinds of individuals. So this threw the world into uh, an age of, of chaos, really. Um, there is a specific name for the age. Let me go ahead and grab it real quick. If you guys have questions, now's a great. I don't have a question. But the um, the land that is called Galorian, that's just such a cool name. <laughs> I know yeah. it's a random tidbit, but I just thought that was really cool. No, it's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's called Galarian, and it has a really detailed map. Um, it's broken into continents, much like the real world. Um, most of the adventure paths happen in what an area called Avistan, which is kind of like think think Earth World Europe kind of thing. And different countries there represent different aspects of, of fantasy Europe that are often captured in a lot of fantasy uh, texts and settings and things like that. Um, mm. To the south, there's a, an a almost pseudo-African style continent called Gurund. Like you have an Egyptian area, you have like uh, almost a, a jung huge expansive jungle. It's very detailed. And then to the east, you even have... Uh, a region akin to India and beyond that, Japan and China, a land called Tianjia. Uh, Mongolia is represented there. And there's even a, a mystery continent to the west. Um, oh, I'm blanking on Arcadia, uh, which is not explored at all. Uh, and that's kind of representative of like North America, South America kind of stuff. So it is, it is very analogous to the real world and it is extremely expansive. Uh, for as detailed as it is, they never seem to have exactly what you're looking for as a DM writing your own story. <laughs> so you got to make up your own stuff a lot of the time, but that's totally fine. Um, okay. okay and I, I have a couple things ahead. if you're not, if you're done with that part bit. I was just going to 
tag the last thing about the death of Aridin. That way we can get into the story of the AP after your questions. Um, the history of Galarian is broken into various ages. And ages are not specific lengths. They're kind of like eras in, in the real world. Mm. They, are, they are demarcated by significant events. So there's the Age of Creation, which is pre-time and history and, and beings. The Age of Serpents, which is pre-human life. Uh, the Age of Legend, which is pre an event called Earthfall, where an enormous meteor struck the planet and plunged the world into darkness, um, which that era that came after was called the Age of Darkness, followed by the Age of, <laughs> Age of Anguish, uh, followed by the Age of Destiny, which was really the uh, that was marked by the rise of Aridin to godhood. Then the Age of Enthronement was kind of the beginning of of AD time as we understand it. So that's 1 AR to 4606 AR, which is marked by the death of Aridin, which brings us to the age that players play in now, which is really only the last hundred and change years um, of this world, which is the age of lost omens, which any omens that are, are created or, or claimed do not come true because of the death of Aridin. So that's where we find ourselves in the series of, of the ages, uh, leading into the first Pathfinder AP, which starts 101 years after the start of the Age of Lost Omens. Okay. A uh, couple things. Number one, I think it would behoove you to toss a map in the chat just for TJ, if you have one quickly available. Oh boy, do I. I have a really high res one. Um, two, TJ... I'm going to have a bunch of nitty gritty questions. I'm going to wait until Dan ends. And when Dan does end, I want you to go first because I think I am less likely to forget my questions because I actually know what a bunch of this shit means. That makes sense. So I'm just yeah. saying anytime questions are asked for, I'm expecting you to go first. Um, three, was D&D specifically destiny based? Is this death of Aridin and death of destinies meant to, to pull Pathfinder apart from D&D because destinies don't work here? No. From what I understand from a story writing perspective, um, the concept of the death of Aridin and the death of omens and, and prophecies um, is basically the statement of the players have the power to make their own fate. D&D mm, okay. um, wasn't in any way particularly tied to prophecies or omens. Um, obviously, every fantasy game or fantasy setting has the idea of magical prophecies being foretold and heroes rising to power or horrible things happening and coming to pass. Stuff like that. So it's not anything specifically tied to D&D that I, I'm aware of. Um, it, I, I've always viewed it from a literary standpoint and from a, as a DM in particular, it is Paizo coming forth and saying, hey, we needed something to structure the outline. And we feel like this is a really inspirational way of saying players have choice. Players have the ability to change the world around them because nothing is written down in, in fate as a prophecy from the perspective of players. Now, as okay. far as NPCs and, and events that are written in these APs, you're damn right things are guaranteed to come to pass. But again, that kind of deals with some of the railroadiness I mentioned of APs. Um, if you homebrew a campaign, uh, which basically means self-write a campaign, um, then literally whatever the players choose, they're writing their own story. And you're just there to tell it and make sure it makes sense and provide that kind of 
that that grease that makes sure it keeps moving and players are interested and you control all the variables outside of the players. Could that technically be like an infinite game then? Yes. Absolutely. Um, I believe one of one of Matt and my mutual friends has a game going on that's been going on for like three, four years. And it's not because people just aren't there to finish it. It's they're literally just playing the same campaign because they're loving it. And that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and my final question. Um, fuck. <laughs> All this shit. Like, I'm not going to forget my questions, TJ. You go first. Write them down about, on the notepad. It was about That's Aradin. That's I'm doing. I have my notepad out, just in case. Um, oh, yes. No. If Aradin died and Destinies don't happen, is the only certainty that Destinies don't happen? So if anybody's like, oh, the prophecy foretells, you'd be like, oh, that's just not going to happen. Aradin's dead. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, from my understanding, that's the case. So kind of all of these these soothsayers, these prophecy tellers, um, which for reference, I'm not saying a, a fortune teller is automatically wrong. To make it completely in, uh, clear, there's a difference between a uh, kind of a a, a fortune, a, a short-term foresight kind of thing um, through like what's called divination magic, which is basically the ability to see or hear uh, through time and space. There's a difference between that and a, a destiny or a prophecy. Basically, before the fall of Aridin, Within the timeline of the Aslanti into the Thessalonian, which we'll get into a lot, if you don't know what that is, into everything up to before the fall of Aridin, the peoples were, they were kind of a superstitious people. They looked to the stars and told prophecies of long-term events happening. One of those was, you know, hundreds of years before the actual fall of Aridin, someone made the prophecy that Aridin would return to his people um, on that year. Uh, there have been other long-term prophecies that have uh, come to pass in that period, but basically any of those world-changing kind of prophecies, those like grand, this is the path Galarian as a whole is on prophecies, um, those do not come to pass. But if you happen to come across an actual magic fortune teller in a night market in your campaign, for example, and they tell you a week from now you're going to get into a bar fight and lose your left eye, chances are that's still probably accurate. If they're legitimate and they're not trying to con you out of your gold. So it Makes is sense. not, yeah, it is not all divinations that are wrong. Um, that would completely nullify a school of magic. That would be very limiting from a storytelling perspective it is these grand divine prophecies uh, are no longer guaranteed true all right so with that we're going to jump forward 101 years in the timeline <laughs> to the beginning of rise of the rune lords which is the first paizo ap to be completely fair, I am fairly certain the first one, two, three, four, five, uh, five-ish adventure paths that were done by Paizo were actually conversions of D&D writing. So they basically took an old D&D campaign or story that was reasonably loved or interesting or only partially finished 
and through the open game license that most of D&D was done in at the time, they converted it to work with their system and they wrote it to work with their world, basically. So the first one is called Rise of the Rune Lords. Uh, a little bit of background needed to understand the plot of this adventure path is uh, that before this time, before er the fall of Eridan, there was an ancient nation called Thassalon. Thassalon was what's called a megocracy or a mage oligarchy. Oligarchy, pardon me. It was a bunch of different countries in the area of Avistan uh, that were run by extremely powerful wizards. Um, and the magic of that era, of that time, was understood as sin magic. Everything was very evil and dark in this time. Uh, basically, you had a rune lord for each cardinal sin. Wrath, lust, envy, so on and so forth. Uh, and these people would rule their countries and have their people live in a way that exemplified the various sins which correlated to the more modern schools of magic, save for one. Divination which, interestingly enough, is kind of representative of the fall of Aridin. If he was the god of prophecies and of destiny, and no one believed in foresight and destiny and fortune-telling and such, then he probably lost quite a bit of power. But uh, it is very gray around the specifics of what happened with Aridin, so we don't know if that's actually impacted his power and led to perhaps his fall. But this ancient nation of Thassalon was torn apart by war and by the great event, uh, world-shattering event known as the Earthfall, um, which I guess happened before Aridin's time, so that that wouldn't impact his strength and whatnot. But the Earthfall was basically... Um, by the way, there's going to be massive spoilers here. I will try to preface each spoiler for those who care about the story. Uh, if you're playing through a specific AP, so on and so forth. So, spoiler here. The Earthfall was caused by uh, a basically a war between the Aslanti people, which were the predecessors to Thassalonians. So Thassalon is essentially Aslant moved to Avistan. Uh, was a war that resulted in the basically the destruction of most life on the planet of Galarian through the calling of a giant meteor. This event was called the Earthfall, and the beings that called it were things called Aboleths, which are these kind of pseudo-eldritch creatures that live under the oceans and things like that. Um, it's, it's really complicated and not particularly important to the general flow of things, so this is kind of old history stuff. But basically, this ancient war between aquatic, super intelligent, almost space-like creatures and these super powerful humanoid mages resulted in a catastrophic Earthfall event that ended the world, uh, more or less. The Rune Lords were powerful enough to know this was coming. And each and every one of them came up with a strategy to basically put themselves in various forms of stasis to survive this world-ending event. Rise of the Rune Lords is the beginning of their return. And when they return, they're going to want their countries back. So the world as you know it, the modern era of Galarian, that has, you know, different countries, heavily human populated, uh, dwarves, gnomes, so on and so forth, and uh, very geopolitically complicated situations, 
is now going to have these really old ancient rulers that are set in their ways of one thing working and ruling the world by that one way, coming back and wanting their shit back. So that is kind of what spurs on the beginning of Rise of the Rune Lords is. They are beginning to awaken from their various forms of stasis. Um, Rise of the Rune Lords deals with one Rune Lord coming back in particular. His name is Karzug, the Rune Lord of Greed. Now, before I get into the details of that story, I know I went over a lot of shit that might be kind of interesting. So do you guys have any questions so far? I have a question that you might not have an answer to. Um, and one that I've been thinking about for a while from what you've been describing. So, Aradin, um, is there a possibility in the future, and I know this is just a speculation answer, that they would uh, say what happened to him? Um, I think that's completely possible to explore as a story point, uh, because, like I said, it's been left as an extreme gray area. It's assumed he died because of the events that have resulted from his disappearance. But nowhere is it known or clearly stated that he is, in fact, dead, to my knowledge. Um, to be fair, I haven't played every single AP, every single module, so on and so forth. But to my knowledge, they have not openly stated that he has died. There's a lot of indication that he has, but it's completely possible he's somewhere where his connection to the material plane of Galarian isn't working. So they could totally explore what actually happened to him. Yes. That makes sense. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those grand mysteries that threw a wrench into the workings of the world. Other than that, I think it was all kind of straightforward. <laughs> as straightforward yeah. as a whole new fantasy world can be. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have anything else, Matt? For uh, no, not really. Okay. Um, so the story of Rise of the Rune Lords, which we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one. A, I've run it. B, it's foundational to the setup of a lot of later plots. The story to Rise of the Rune Lords is basically the party of adventurers starts in a small, sleepy little town called Sandpoint, which is on the coast of Verizia. For reference, Verizia is not really a ruled country. It's kind of like a roaming land of gypsies uh, with a lot of important city states and a lot of different nations having some stake or some claims in Verizia. Starts in a sleepy little town called Sandpoint, and the party kind of uncovers pieces of this grand plot throughout the first half of the AP. Um, it starts with some some goblins going rogue and causing problems in the little town and the heroes inadvertently becoming local heroes uh, and getting involved in some of the uh, local situations, dealing with the goblins, things like that. The party goes off to deal with the goblins at their source and engages in, in uh, an encounter with a woman who happens to be a follower of Karzug. Um, through means and ways, Karzug, who has awoken from his slumber, has magically reached out to this woman and convinced her to join his cause through various details that aren't important for the grand story. The party doesn't know it at this time, but after they defeat her and the goblins, they actually acquire something called a Sahedrin necklace. A Sahedrin is... Basically, in this game, it's the seven-pointed star. It's a very jagged-looking kind of rune-like star, and each point on it represents one of the seven schools of sin magic. 
from Thassalon. It's an ancient symbol. No players have any reason to know what it is. They just think it's a magic necklace that has some pretty cool features. In reality, from the moment they put that on, the big bad evil guy from the very end of the campaign, Karzug, the Rune Lord of Greed, uh, can follow their moves. It, it, it is a, a, a divination focus, essentially, kind of thing. He can basically listen to what they're saying, watch to, to a certain degree what they're doing, it's so on and so It's a divination focus? I mean, anything that manipulates time and space. But that's a no-no! No, 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 no. He's not casting the magic. It's an artifact that lets him do it. Okay. It's a loophole. Okay. Paizo loves their loopholes. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Dan went over this, TJ, but there are eight schools of magic, but there are seven schools of sin magic because all the sin mages thought the divination was for dummies. Yeah, yeah. They, they thought no one could actually tell the future, so divination was a joke. Oh. Which is why yeah. anytime a, a rune lord is using divination magic, you're like, hey, hey, what? What about all that shit, though? <laughs> yeah, which, funnily enough, one of the patron deities of Thessalonian mages was about prophecies and runes and shit. So it's really weird. I don't I don't look too deep into that. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, from the beginning, they're involved in this grand plot with the big bad evil guy before they even know it. That's basically book one. Book two has them kind of doing a um, Sherlock Holmesy murder investigation style thing. Oh, basically, fun. yeah, it's really <laughs> it cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, there's basically a, a serial killer breaks out in Sandpoint, and you through the adventure you basically learn that it's this guy who is suffering from a plague of undeath. He's actually died and come back with uh, the influence and support of a pretty dark god. Um, and it's really interesting because the way that this happened was through a basically a magical mold parasite in the basement of his house. I know it's kind of weird, kind of an offshoot, <laughs> but it's very important because this uh, this this disease that came from this is actually the predecessor to something very important in the next adventure, Curse of the Crimson Throne, which we'll get mm. to in a minute. Um. Just real quick, if you don't mind me. Yeah, go for asking. it. So the, the the rune lords are considered gods or they're not considered gods? That's an interesting question. I um, think, uh, from my limited understanding, they sure would like you to think they're gods. Correct. They they treated themselves like Xerxes from 300. They claimed they were god okay. kings. Now, I will warn you, in most cases, that was not true. However, there were one or two that essentially were demigods. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, I'm going to talk about it in this AP briefly, and it's much bigger of a piece of information later in the later AP. There is one. It was the Rune Lord of Pride. Uh, of course he it is, was. He is also <laughs> known as the Peacock Spirit, which is an ancient deity. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, one other question then. Mm -hmm. How many, if, unless this doesn't apply right now, how many gods are there? There's a shit bunch. Ton of them. Okay, okay. That, that's yeah. fine. So, uh, go ahead. I was going to say there's a bunch of Paizo like unique gods, and they've also borrowed a couple pantheons. Like a bunch of the Egyptian gods are in there. Yeah, so. 
So basically, okay. you kind of have the old gods, air quotes, which in certain parts of the world, that's the Egyptian gods. In certain parts, that's the Norse gods, so on and so forth. And then you have the modern gods, um, which there's gods for all kinds of things. Throughout the explanation of the AP, I'm going to go over a significant number of them because deities are very much tied to the events of this world. And in some cases, they even show up in uh, one or two of the APs. Very cool. Um, so... Uh, you do this kind of cool murder mystery adventure for book two, um, and you go deal with this basically haunted house and defeat the serial killer known as the Skinsaw Man. Very creepy, ghoulified dude. Kill him in your basement, er, in the basement of his haunted house kind of thing. Very fun little adventure. Um, it feels like a bit of an offshoot from the main plot, but you really don't get dug into the main plot until about halfway through book three. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a way for players to level up, get involved in the story, learn a little bit more about the plot. Um, but it also ties to basically wrapping up the loose ends of this murder plot is how book three starts. You actually travel to a very large city in Southern, uh, Verizia known as Magnamar. It's a very important city in the whole lore and whatnot. Um, you don't get too involved in it in most APs, but it's one of those places where like if you're running your homebrew campaign, it's a big place to go. Um, but the players head to Magnamar to tie up some loose ends, and they find the serial killer's home in Magnamar, basically. And you find out he owed a lot of money to a basically a mob family. Um, and you get attacked while you're in the home. Uh, and you kind of follow the thread, you fight the mob... Um, to try and keep them away from your, your little friendly town of Sandpoint, you find out they're being manipulated by an agent of whatever this Sahedron rune thing is. Because, oh yeah, that's an important point in book two. The serial killer was branding bodies he killed with the Sahedron symbol that you found as the necklace on the boss from book one. So gotcha. you're, you're starting to piece together that there's a thread here. So he was influenced by this. You find out the mob is influenced by this, and you get a lead to go to this old, ancient, destroyed, leaning clock tower in Magnamar. And you uh, go up it, and you have a fight with a golem in the basement and a couple more monsters on the way up. And then you have a fight with the boss at the top of the tower, which is something called a Lamia... Uh, well, it w yeah, it was a matriarch, I believe. So she a was like a half-snake woman. Yeah. Very <laughs> tough boss fight. Uh, she basically has a bunch of loot, and she has some leads for you to follow on this grand plot, basically. Uh, it turns out she has a sister, Lamia. They both serve this mysterious individual known as Mokmurian, which you later find out to be a stone giant also being manipulated by the Rune Lord of Greed, Karzuk. Um, I, uh, I basically uh -huh. died there. Basically, your whole party almost died there. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> in, in that boss fight, the wonderful idea of splitting the party... Uh, yeah. unintentionally came about. Two people went to the bottom of the clock tower thinking they were done. The other two continued climbing up the ruined clock tower and tried to fight the boss on their own. Uh, Matt's character was essentially made brain dead by this creature. Yep. And the other character that went up there with him uh, attempted to save him, failed, and jumped out of the clock tower and thought he could use magic to stop his descent. Unfortunately, the boss was a spellcaster I... and killed him as he was falling through the air. Yeah, no, I, I, I think about round two. I figured out we were we were fucked. I told him, knowing that he could cast Featherfall, to jump out of the fucking building and do it and save himself. 
He took an extra round to try and help me and then jumped, and it just got us both dead instead of one of us maybe not dead. Yeah. So and here's a question. For, okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, and the other two ran up there and barely fucking beat her. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, what was your question? So, so say the whole party died then. Um, do you have to start all over, or is it like a good um, decision to start from a point? It depends on how your DM wants to to deal with that scenario. There's a couple different schools of thought. Um, one is create a new party of adventurers, get them hooked and started in roughly the same spot that you lost at. Another one is you lost the campaign, move on to the next one. Uh, and a third one is, OK, rewind it back. You know what's coming. Let's just play it again. We're here to play the game uh, and see the story to its end. Those are the three most common ways I've seen it dealt with. I've never dealt with the TPK total party kill, but I don't think I'd like that last one. It feels unearned. Yeah. And in most that last one, in most cases, is usually when you fail at the last boss. Ah, fair. Yeah. If you if you get to the very end of the campaign and you lose the final fight, you take it on the chin and you say, but I still want to know what happens afterward. And you can run the fight again, see if you win, or you can have the DM just read like, well, you lost, so this is what happens. But if you had won, this is what would happen. Yeah, because I believe every campaign has a win and lose conditions, and some of them even are canonical lose conditions. Yes, I believe some of the APs are canonically like you you half win kind of thing like you slow them down but eventually this happens blah 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 yeah so one other question then Mm -hmm. just to make sure clearly uh so say because you're saying like at the end of a campaign is a book considered an end of a campaign when you finish that no or is the campaign the six books it's the whole campaign okay yeah, sorry. I say campaign. That was old D&D nomenclature. Campaign and adventure path are interchangeable. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so that ends there. You get a lead, you follow it, um, and you begin to learn that the stone giants are... A lot of the stone giants are serving Karzug. I'm going to speed up the second half of this because it really wraps up a lot faster. Um, and you basically keep following these threads of leads, which lead you to the ancient city of Zin Shalast up in the mountains. Uh, Zin Shalast is a city paved in gold. Literally all of the floor surfaces are gold lined. The buildings are enormous. This was a country of large creatures back in the day. Giants wandering the streets is the most common, things like that. Um, and the party basically pushes forward through this ancient city gets to the citadel of the evil rune lord um and and battles through it and finds out that the way Karzug survived is he put himself in stasis in what's called a demiplane which is basically a small pocket world of existence a space created by an extremely powerful wizard that is like its own miniature world mm-hmm. um so he was surviving there so you have to break open the door to his pocket dimension and go and defeat him there. His strategy to gain enough power to exit the pocket dimension was actually, you learn all the way from the beginning this has been going on, he was collecting the souls of greedy humans. Ah. And the way he was doing that was influencing people to mark bodies of people they have killed with the Sahedron rune. 
And then he had this, basically this aperture, this enormous thing called a soul lens that captured their souls and funneled it into this power source that he was going to use to reconnect his demiplane to the material plane of Galarian so he could enter. He also had this crazy machine that was using eldritch Cthulian powers to try and pull his army from thousands of years ago to the present day. So he had an instant force. And the party actually wow. had to thwart that machine on the way to defeating him. That's crazy. Yeah. We did it. Also, so so are we talking that book six then? Yep. Yes, that, okay. that was book six. I skipped most of book four and five. Um, it's basically just filling out kind of why Karzug's a bad guy, how you're actually going to defeat someone of such immense power, and a lot of exploring the enormous city of Zinshalast, which that the book sense. actually doesn't have a lot of details on really interesting places in the city, but I actually wrote my own dungeons for half of that stuff, and the players got to play through it. And I think it went really well. It was fucking awesome, well, damn. Cool. Thank so, you. Um, the one question that I have... Uh, which is probably a spoiler. You said that the the mole parasite was a predecessor, yeah, which was in book three. So what was that mole? I'm just curious. He'll get to yeah. It. Well, no, that that's a perfect lead into the next AP, which is Curse of the Crimson Throne. Oh, so it wasn't a part of. So it was a predecessor for other APs. Yep. Yeah. Part. It was. It was uh, they. Okay. Yeah, they tied in a side detail of the first campaign into a major plot point of the second campaign. Now, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, they do that a lot. This doesn't make sense or come to light to the players unless they played the first one and investigate a very specific thread of points in the second one. But it's still really cool. So Curse of the Crimson Throne, I played through this as a player character. Uh, It was a long time ago. I'll try to make this one more brief than the first one. Uh, basically, this takes place on the other side of Verizia in a city known as Corvosa. This was from February 2008 to July 2008 in the real world, so that's 4708. Um, it happens within the span of six months of that year. Uh, basically, the campaign starts with the party being brought together by a mysterious calling card, and you find out that there is a ghostly spirit within this harrow deck Um that has requested you hunt down a a drug kingpin in the city of Corvosa. Uh, That's how it starts. And that's that's kind of the first piece of the adventure, is you go and you hunt down this man named Gadrin Lamb, who through various traits that your characters can choose from at the start of the AP are connected to in some way. My character in particular for this adventure was a drug addict. He was hooked on the drug this man was peddling. And one of the other player characters, played by my real-life brother, John, uh, was my character's sister. Her name was Alana. And she took care of my character when he was having drug binges. So she wanted to go kill this guy real bad. And my my character was her brother. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he couldn't escape it. So he knew he had to go help with this, this scenario. So in book one, you go and you hunt down this drug kingpin. And that's really not related to the plot at all. It's a way to bring the party together because what happens to drive the plot to start the big story here, after you kill Gadrin Lamb, the drug kingpin, after you leave his den, you realize the city is in a riot because the king of Corvosa has been killed. And now his queen, who was a young woman from a nation known as Cheliax, which thinks Spanish Inquisition, 
era Spain. Cheliax is an evil nation. Uh, it is literally run by devils. Um, the king is dead and she is now in power and the city's in an uproar. And your party slowly gets involved in finding out the truth of this. Uh, they try to scapegoat it to a woman. She's an artist named Trinius Abor. They say she poisoned the king. Uh, you get involved in saving her. There's a vigilante character named uh, Blackjack, who's very hmm. Batman-esque. Um, and you basically get involved with saving this innocent woman, which leads to uncovering more plot of uh, the city going to hell under the rule of this queen. People are doing awful things just to survive. And uh, you more and more begin to realize that Queen Iliosa, uh, who, was, who is now the Queen of Corvosa, um, after she murdered the king, you slowly begin to discover and and have thoughts that perhaps she is the bad guy. Um, which begins to be more confirmed when a horrible plague breaks out throughout the city of Corvosa. Um, this plague is named Bloodvale because people begin to cough up uh, this misty red blood uh, and, and slowly begin to die from this plague. And this plague is a permutation of the mold from mm -hmm. the AP. That's where it comes in. And the whole, I believe, third book is you trying to figure out the source of this, who caused it, where it came from. And you basically learn that the, uh, the plague doctors that are brought in by the queen are actually assassins from an assassin guild known as the Red Mantis under disguise. And they're here to help overthrow any of the standard kind of structures of responsibility and control within the city that aren't under the direct control of the queen between that and the queen institutes her basically her own kind of like SS party Stalin-esque, uh, you know, soldier party, uh, known as the gray maidens, which are these super powerful women warrior characters who go through this horrible process and become kind of brainwashed. Kind of um, like the black widow people. Yeah, kind of like that. So basically the whole third book, you're running around this city that you're no longer essentially welcome in by the authorities, save a couple that are on your side, uh, trying Crafty to poo. solve this, <laughs> trying to solve this mystery. Um, eventually it becomes apparent to you, you're not going to find solutions here. Um, and you have to leave the city, you go on an adventure, uh, you go through this whole desert area of Verizia called the Cinderlands, find out some ancient information and the location of a powerful weapon that will be enough to defeat Queen Iliosa, who you begin to learn is under the influence of some very powerful magic and magical artifacts uh, known as the Fangs of Kazavon. Kazavon is a very ancient dragon who was believed to be destroyed. Um, he was involved with a being known as uh, Tarbafon, also known as the Lich King. Uh, he is mm. he's an ancient figure that basically waged war and destroyed an enormous portion of Galarian, uh, covering it in his swarms of undead minions, um, but has since been sealed away. He was actually defeated in combat by Arid <clears throat> pardon me, Aridin himself before he died. Uh, Tarbafon has been sealed away in a country called Ustalov, and we will get into that later in our plot discussion. But you learn that um, Kazavon isn't actually dead. His spirit is still within these artifacts that Iliosa happens to be wearing as a crown. Uh, 
So sh basically, long story short, you learn that Iliosa isn't there anymore. She is basically fused with the spirit of this ancient evil dragon who served basically the most evil and destructive force on the face of Galarian in thousands of years. Um, and between her desires and the ego of the dragon, she basically, her goal is she wants to live forever. And the way she's going to do that is she's going to sacrifice the entire city of Corvosa to awaken an ancient rune well, which will give her the powers of a rune lord that, unbeknownst to the players, is actually buried underneath the castle of Corvosa. So, still dealing with the rune lord plot. But basically, <laughs> you go and you get this super powerful sword, and you return to Corvosa. And you battle through the castle and you fight through all the bad guys and you get to Queen Iliosa and you fight her and her confidants and you kill her and she turns into a pool of uh, snowy slush and blood. And you learn that she has replaced herself in Corvosa with something called a simulacrum, which is basically a magical body double. Um, realizing that the fight's not over, you have to find out where she went you manage to stop the sacrifice of an entire populace of a city. You are essentially heroes at this point. But you go and you chase her down in some of the swamps of Verizia, where she uh, has found the location of a rune well in basically this upside-down pyramid half-buried in the swamp. So you go through it, and you find her in the central chamber where she's awaiting the power to return, and she's kind of supercharged and she's able to form this like skeletal version of Kazavon, the great dragon. So you have to battle this enormous like undead dragon being while fighting her and her seven body doubles she's created. And it's just this huge all out battle in this confined space. Um, and the party is intended to defeat her and stop her from basically absorbing the power of the rune Lord of lust to become immortal herself and bring back Kazavon the Destroyer. And that's kind of the end of that AP. Um, and Corvosa goes on to be a prosperous city under the rule of one of the NPCs that helps you. Her name is... Uh, oh shit, what's her full Croft. name? Croft. I know her name is Croft, but I don't remember her full name. Crofty-poo. <laughs> Crofty-poo. But yeah, so mm. that's that's the story of Curse of the Crimson Throne. That's you Bay right there basically thwart a maddened <laughs> queen who was convinced to poison her own king. Oh, and you find proof of the poisoning when you storm the castle in book five. Isn't it like Cressida Croft? Six. Cressida Croft, thank you, yep. I gotta this remember Bay's name. That that last fight sounds like a blast, though. It was, it was really interesting. It was pretty cool. Um... But those are the first two APs. The next couple I'm going to wrap up here at the end of the episode because I did not play through them. I kind of vaguely know the plots of them, but they really don't have an impact on the story as a whole. Um, the next adventure path was called Second Darkness. Basically, the heroes thwart a plan to bring about a second Earthfall, uh, which is the giant meteor that annihilated most of the planet. Um, it's run by a bunch of dark elves being manipulated, I believe, by some aboleths. It's a bit of a controversial AP. It's fairly interesting. Um, but it is still it is still written in D&D 3.5. So if you want to play it in the Pathfinder setting, you have to convert 
some information. Uh, <laughs> just as a warning. It's it gives a lot of interesting backstory on Drow and a little bit on the Earthfall. It's and it lets you explore a really cool city called Riddleport. Um the next one is a campaign called Legacy of Fire. Again, still written in 3.5, so you'd have to do some conversion. But this actually takes place in basically the Egypt parallel. Um, it follows the story of two ancient warring armies of genies battling on a mountainside. Um, and you go and kind of investigate what's going on with that because things start sparking up in the desert again. And you actually learn that there is a fire genie warlord who has picked up where the two warring armies had left off and is using the power of something called a child of Ravagug uh, to empower himself and basically bolster his own life and strength with a genie's magical wishing power. He's found a way to grant himself wishes, basically. Um, for a brief reference, uh, a child of Ravagug is an enormous monstrous beast. So Ravagug, for reference, is a god of pure chaos. It is a he's known as the rough beast. He is a monster that exists only to destroy. And he is presumed uh, by the stories of the gods themselves. They imprisoned Ravagug in a chamber in the center of the planet. <laughs> that sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. So he he still manages to to get some influence out, and there are disgustingly powerful creatures known as the children of Ravagug. It's believed in the Pathfinder world that a um, very famous monster from original D anD D known as the Tarask uh, is a child of Ravagug. It is basically this like city sized giant dinosaur monster that just destroys everything in its wake. Just it walking destroys towns. Yeah. Um, the being that this genie has found dead on this mountain slope is, uh, it's this great fireworm that is a child of Ravagug. So he's kind of sapping its essence uh, as it's this huge mythical creature, basically. Um, so that's really cool if you're a fan of that kind of idea and that plot line with Ravagug, things like that. But it doesn't really impact the world as a whole particularly largely um and then the next one is called council of thieves which basically explores uh Cheliax, which is that nation run by devil bound rulers um they worship devils they've made contracts with them um and basically in this campaign you work with a well, you don't really work with it. You kind of connect with an organization called the Council of Thieves, which is a crime syndicate within Cheliax. Yes, a crime syndicate within an evil country. Um, for all their wrongdoings, though, Cheliax is what's called lawful, which means they follow the rules that are designed. They're very adherent to the laws. So although they are evil people, on average, they behave as society expects. Them. That being said... Slavery is legal in Cheliax, so... Yeah, they're not good people. Um, but essentially, the Council of Thieves uh, is having a power struggle within itself. And it is causing problems for the capital of Cheliax, West Crown. 
So you as a party kind of deal with that and come to a resolution. Um, again, it, it lets you explore Cheliax. It lets you explore the House of Thrun, which is the ruling family of Cheliax, which becomes more important in later APs. But again, not a huge impact on the overall story um, and, and formation of Galarian. Uh, and then after that one, we have Kingmaker, which is a very interesting one, but that would probably be a good point to pick up next time because we're in the meat of it. So we'll be able to kind of push through most of the AP plot lines next time. We won't have the 24 minute intro of explaining some basics. Um, <laughs> and we all, I will also be able to skip over more of these like I had done for the last couple because they're not particularly impactful to the plot of the world as a whole, but they are really awesome adventures in themselves. And, and what we're doing is we're going to end up catching up, but it's not completed, right? Correct. They're still actively making stories. So cool. ba basically there is uh, a final adventure in uh, what's called Pathfinder 1.0. So the first version of the system they wrote a bunch of adventure paths, and the last one is called Tyrant's Grasp. Um, and then after that, they started making adventure paths for their new system recently published called Pathfinder 2, um, which they've made some pretty sweeping changes to the system. It's more approachable for new players to kind of wrap their head around. Old players <coughs> are happy, pardon the cough, because it solves a lot of problems that people had with the mechanics of the system. Um, yeah, towards the end of its yeah. lifespan, Pathfinder 1 was uh, not what you would call in every instance a balanced system. Yeah, at the higher levels, the game gets very number crunchy and kind of linear. There's a lot of like, why would I do anything but this one thing that my character can do? Because mm -hmm. it's so much better than all the other things. In Pathfinder 2, mm -hmm. that is not the case at all that I've seen. Um it's much more freeform. You have a lot more choice in the minutiae of things. It's got better structure for the kind of out of combat scenarios and how how time moves, things like that. So, uh, but yeah, they're still writing stuff. For example, um, they're writing uh, an adventure path called Abomination Vaults. It'll be done in, uh, it started in January, so it'll be done in what, June? And then... They're also, they've also started writing, uh, well, they're going to start as of next month, a campaign called Fists of the Ruby Phoenix, which explores Tianjia, which is the Asian portion of Galarian. And then they also have planned a, a campaign called Strength of Thousands, which I believe actually explores... Uh, but Arcadia? No, Damn I believe it is Garund. Uh, let's see. Where is this? I always forget that Arcadia is a thing, and then you mention it, and I'm like, why haven't they touched on that? Fuck. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Strength of Thousands actually explores the Mwangi Expanse, which is the huge jungle portion of the African-style continent that uh, I had mentioned earlier. Cool. It's like the Amazon jungle, but in Africa. But yeah, we will pick up on this in next episode. We're leaving off at Kingmaker, which I'll have a little bit more to say about than the last couple I went over, the last three I went over. Um, and then we'll get into 
basically to kind of put a pin in it there's two major plot lines running through these and a lot of side stories the first major plot line is the rune lords which we had discussed and there's a lot of undertones of rune lords throughout various ap's and the second one is that that lich king i mentioned tarbafon known as the whispering tyrant uh he is involved in a couple here which are very interesting as well and we'll talk about that but that's kind of your intro to the adventure path plot lines of pathfinder uh sorry if it got a little involved and a little specific in places but there's a hell of a lot of information uh if you're worried about listening to this and thinking it's not worth playing the ap after you hear this it totally fucking is there is so much detail i did not go into in just the first two that i covered today like i think you made it sound like it's a lot of fun to play yeah he, so. it really really is he he touched on that first lamia there's like four or five of those things and three of them killed me <laughs> so there's fucking tons there's a giant black tower at some point with a fucking a mummy, mummy. underneath it <laughs> with a super fucking plague that almost kills all of us and if it doesn't it debilitates you so the super mummy is even scarier uh, there's like these fucking rune giants that are covered in fucking runes and can kind of just blow up in your face. It's all sorts of insane shit. Yeah, there's there's a lot in these that I'm not going over. Please, please, please explore the idea of playing this. Um, I would recommend doing Pathfinder 2. Find a DM for that if you uh, if you're new to tabletop RPGs in general. Honestly, if you're experienced, there's a lot of, like, worry about if Pathfinder 2 is something enjoyable. Just give it, it an honest try. Uh, the first couple levels, I'm still not a fan of as a character. Everything feels brutally difficult to get through, but stick with it. After the first couple levels, it is fucking awesome. Um, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend trying out the two uh pathfinder 2 adventure path agents of edgewatch uh, i think that's that's a really good one um if you're looking for a way to get into this find a dm who's willing to run that for you uh, i think that would be a great way to get involved in it and yeah stay tuned for more awesome fantasy plot lines as we go through the list of adventure paths here alternatively yes. you could be the dm that runs that for your friends <laughs> But uh, with that, unless anyone's got anything else, we could we could close this one out. Yeah, no, I'm good. All right, this has been the Wax Show. I was your host Dan, talking about a bunch of nerd stuff and Pathfinder. I was Matt, also a nerd, here to be nerds. And uh, I'm the nerd teacher, so yeah, it all works. There we go. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.